Please be seated. Last week we began our series on the book of Ephesians. We looked at the introduction. Just want to review quickly what we talked about last week, looking at the two primary sections of the book of Ephesians, the overview, what to keep in mind as we began looking at each particular section of the book of Ephesians. We looked at chapters 1 through 3 being about orthodoxy as the Apostle Paul saying, I want you to know and be, be reminded of, be affirmed, be exhorted to know who God is and who you are in Christ Jesus. And so chapters 1 through 3, orthodoxy, the indicatives, the truth about reality, section of the book of Ephesians. And that follows, obviously, chapters 4 through 6, where the Apostle Paul says, in light of those glorious realities, all the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, live in a manner worthy of that calling. And so from orthodoxy, Paul moves in the second part of Ephesians toward the praxis, or from indicative uh, to the imperatives, that is, the commands, the what we should do in light of who God is and who we are in Christ Jesus. It's a book that speaks to us today as Paul was speaking to the believers in Ephesus that lived in a very difficult place. And we live in a very difficult place spiritually. And so he's speaking to us today to encourage us to know the truth and by God's grace to live out that truth boldly and with great zeal. So the, the title of the sermon series, just to, just to keep us anchored in these two pillars, these, this overview is call to Jesus, to live for Jesus. That's the book of Ephesians. Now today we begin looking at the first major part of the book of Ephesians. We begin in chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, and we'll go through verse 6, and it's the first part where... We began looking at who God is and who we are in Christ Jesus as we began looking at some of these spiritual realities, these, the, the riches of, of God's grace. And so today our focus is on what Paul focused on was the plan of God the Father, the plan of redemption of God the Father. So this is what we'll be looking at today. And next week's Reformation Sunday, and so we'll be focused on the Reformation, but in two Sundays, we'll, we'll look at the second part. It's interesting how Paul has organized uh, verses 3 through 14 of the book of Ephesians. It's very Trinitarian. The Father, and then he moves into the Son, accomplishing the plan of redemption. And then the Apostle Paul, and this will be in whatever comes after two weeks from now, three weeks from now, when we look at the Holy Spirit applying the work of the Son to us, sealing us with this guarantee. And God is sovereign, isn't he? And he's so sovereign that he's actually ordained this sermon series that the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we will deal with the last section of the book of Ephesians, which is giving thanks to God for, ourself, for his saving work in our lives. And so that'll line out the, the first chapter of Ephesians, give you give you a schedule that you can pray through and think about as we progressively work through this book that I believe speaks to us right where we are today in, as the faithful saints in Little Rock, Arkansas, just as it spoke to the faithful saint in the ancient uh, city of Ephesus. Now, our sermon outline today is very, very simple. It's just simply following 
the logic of the Apostle Paul in verses 3 through 16. I got confused yesterday in the uh, sermon uh, wedding message and said there were seven points when there was actually six points because there are seven points today. Yes, this is a seven-point sermon. And just put your watches away. We've got plenty of time. I don't want to hear any iPhones going off at 12 o'clock, right? Uh, don't, don't, don't worry. Uh, trust me, said the preacher. I'm time conscious, all right? So open your Bible. So we'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians uh, chapter 1. And as we, as we read this uh, passage, I, I just want you to think about blessing. Think about God's blessing. I don't want you to think about all the objections to the doctrine of election. I don't want you to think about how you would, you would develop an argument to defend the doctrine of election. I don't want you to think about arguing about the doctrine of election. I want you to think about the blessing of the doctrine of election. So let's read the passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let us pray. Great Father in heaven, fill our hearts with the blessing in which you have blessed us, and that we would be reminded of who you are, and that our response would be one of praise, that we would be reminded of what you've done, and our response would be one of praise and humility and thanksgiving. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Now before I get into the seven <laughs> points of this uh, passage, I want to look at verse 3 because verse 3 sets the tone for the rest of the chapter. And what is the tone? Well, it's the tone about blessing. In, in other words, verse 3 says, the blessed will bless the blesser. That's the point of verse 3. That sets the stage for how the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the doctrine of election, the atonement, and the work of the Holy Spirit in applying what the Son accomplished uh, to us. It's so that we would bless God, praise Him, not debate and argue about it. That's the Apostle Paul, that's his concern. The movement of verse 3 begins in heaven. The spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus come from heaven. They are not of this world. They are pure blessing. They are divine blessing. They are merciful and gracious blessings. They are abundant and ever-flowing blessings. They are sufficient blessings. What does the Apostle Paul say? Every spiritual blessing 
is from heaven to you. And the foundation, the source, the, the position of one that receives those blessings is in Christ, those who are united to Christ in saving faith. And in light of all of that, the Apostle Paul says, respond to every spiritual blessing that comes down for you from heaven in Christ Jesus by blessing the blesser, praising him. If you look at the word bless, the very first word of verse 3, that, that word should be understood in the English. And in fact, the Greek word that is used there, if we were to write it out, transliterate it, you would think, wow, that word, that Greek word kind of written out in a transliterated form sure looks like the word that we have and we use today, eulogy. And you'd be correct. Because the, the Greek word translated bless is, is actually the word from which the Latin and the English that we use today gets where we get the word eulogy. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to funerals. I've done quite a few funerals. There's always a eulogy involved with a funeral. And it's a good word about that person. It's words of, of praise, ex- expressing respect and honor for that particular person. You know, hopefully the eulogy is received by those who knew the, the person well by them, not wondering who the speaker is talking about, <laughs> but that it actually is not only a good word, but a true word about that, that particular individual. And here the Apostle Paul, by, by beginning with this word, bless, praise, eulogize God, it's what he's actually saying is that bring a good word about God. Praise Him because of every spiritual blessing that we have in, in Christ Jesus. Interestingly enough, if you take out your Greek Bible, look at verse 3 all the way through verse 14, you would find that it's one sentence. That is a long sentence. And so for all of you grammar people You would be going like this at the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Dr. Hendrickson, wonderful commentator on God's Word, he counted there 202 words in verses 3 through 14. Maybe you could check his work. And and he he said this, that, that this really long sentence is rolling on like a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as as it descends. God's spiritual blessings as we progress verse by verse just keep accumulating all the more reason to eulogize God, to declare a good word about God, to bless Him for all that that He has done. Uh, A pastor acquaintance of mine who uh, serves in, in Memphis several years ago preaching on this very passage spoke about the fact that it is as if the the apostle Paul just gets going in verses 3 through 14 can't even put a period anywhere just can't he's not coming up for air he just keeps pushing forward praising God and it just is getting more and more and more momentum as he declares the glories the riches that we have in Christ Jesus 
That is what the Apostle Paul That is how he wants us to come to this passage, not with debate, not with argument, not with rejection, but with praise in our minds, on our heart, and on our lips. Now, I like to think of it in terms of momentum. What is momentum? It's mass times velocity, right? Equals momentum. Some scientists call momentum mass in Motion, And so we see in verses 3 through 14, just the momentum picking up exponentially. The bigger we understand the riches as we progress through the passage, the more momentum that we see picking up. And our goal today is, is to just experience that momentum in the praiseworthiness of God in light of all that He has blessed us with in Christ Jesus. And this is just the beginning. This is just looking at it from the the vantage point of the Father choosing. And we still got to get to the Son redeeming and the Spirit applying. And then we'll end with thanksgiving and praise, the first prayer that we find in the book of Ephesians. Now, my goal today is not to give a theological exposition of the the doctrine of of election, predestination, all those things. I would encourage you to look at our Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're saying, I don't have a copy, yes, you do. Take your red hymnal, turn to page 850, and you've got chapter 3 right there before you. So you can read that if you still think you need more resources, I'll give you all the resources you need to study about these wonderful truths. But Paul's point here is praise. And I want us today, in light of the truth, is to, re- is to reflect on the praiseworthiness of God who has chose us in Christ Jesus And so let's roll, let's pick up some momentum as we progress through this passage. First thing, his choice. Paul begins by by looking at the spiritual blessing of divine election. And I just want to look just very briefly at a matter I think is important to to have in our minds. When when we talk about God choosing us or electing us, we 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 are talking about God appointing a time when the Holy Spirit will regenerate a dead sinner's heart and give them a new nature so that they now have the spiritual ability to see their sin, to repent of it, to see Jesus and turn to Him in faith and repentance. And so when we look at the doctrine of election, we see that the doctrine of election is the beginning of a process that is called salvation. And we have already reflected today, and rightfully so, on the sovereignty of God. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. And he's sovereign over many things, and the chief of which are the destinies of men. He's sovereign over that. And so this process of salvation begins at at the beginning with God. God's divine election, and he's also sovereign over the end, which is glorification, how we'll be in heaven perfectly remade in the image of God. But here's something else that we need to affirm and see. 
And we'll see this when we start talking about the work of the Son and the application of the Spirit. And as we get into walking in a manner worthy, we're really talking about the atonement and the application of salvation, but also the result of that being sanctification and how we walk. That God is sovereign over the means to get us to the end of our salvation, which is glorification. And what are the means? We know. And there are many scriptures. We don't have time to go over them. But yet he calls us outwardly. That is the proclamation of the gospel in some shape, fashion, or form. And then there's the internal call, which is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, where he gives us a new nature. He changes our heart, enables us to hear the word, not only in our ears, but in our hearts, and to respond to it in repentance and faith. That's conversion. And when someone hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit has changed their heart. They respond in repenting and believing is called effectual calling. That is, God's call to salvation or God's call to Christ is effectual. And then through that that gift of, of faith, God declares the person justified. He adopts them and then puts them on the process of sanctification And he works in us throughout our whole life, progressively sanctifying us, never perfect in this life. And then finally, the end of our salvation is glorification. And I went through this simply to say that God is sovereign over the beginning, he's sovereign over the end, and he's sovereign over the means to accomplish this. And today, if you're struggling with election, if you're struggling with how God works, I hope that's helpful. No Christian I know denies that God is sovereign, but so many of them speak as though he's not because they speak inconsistent with the truth of Scripture. And one of the most encouraging, one of the the things that we should bless God over is that he is sovereign in the saving of men's souls, that he has ordained from beginning to end and everything in between his people making it (laughs) to heaven. What we sang about in the hymn just before the sermon, 10,000 times 10,000. And so here, here's something that, that really helps me in thinking about God being sovereign over salvation. I can say I was saved in eternity past. God chose me. I am saved. There was a point in time when he did change my heart and I, and I repented and believed unto everlasting life. Man, I'm being saved every day. In one sense, he's sanctifying me, and I will be saved ultimately when I am fully glorified. And so we, we, we find the beginning of this glorious plan clearly specified in verse 4. He chose, God chose, and the he there is what we read in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. He is the one who acts. He is the one who makes this uh, choice. This is the very beginning of of, of Paul giving us this orthodoxy, these orthodox truths, these indicatives about who God is and and who we are in Christ Jesus. And And he begins by saying, God is the author of our salvation. He acted. He has ordained. And sinners like you and me will be glorified not by accident or not by God having an afterthought or second thought. Or going, oops, I, I forgot that person. But God intentionally, in eternity past, chose you, chose me, chose other to be glorified, to be united to Christ in saving faith. He 
has acted. It's a big deal, right? I mean, is that something for which to really get excited about? <laughs> and to pr- join me now, yeah, I, I need a hoot and a holler. See, th- that's what Paul is trying to get us to now, understand. I'm not going to get you excited. That's just not my personality. And so irrespective of, of how or not how uh, charismatic I am, uh, God's word should get us excited. So that we bless his name. Because my salvation is not up to me. My salvation is not up to the session, praise God. My salvation is up to God, period. And he has chose me. And he has chose you and all of the saints that will join us in heaven. Well, the second thing is the us. Let's look at us because it says he chose us in verse 4. And he, the Father, chose us. And what is us? Us is sinful humanity. He really, <laughs> just look at that from a human perspective, God didn't have much to choose from. A bunch of rebellious, sinful people. We'll get to this when we get to the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. Sinful humanity was, was his field. Remember back when we did the parable of, of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22, the, the expected people turned down the uh, invitation to the father throwing this great banquet for his, his son. Then he told his servants to go out into the highways, the byways, the hedge, hedge roads, wherever, and call in the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, just call in, and they came. And why, why did they enter, and why were they able to stay? Because they were dressed in the wedding garment the father had prepared. And that is a beautiful picture of the us, God choosing from the us in Ephesians chapter 3. And this, this sinful mass of people, God prepares some to have the right clothing to be in heaven. It's about the wedding garment. It's about the Father's preparation. And Notice that in the parable of the wedding banquet and in our text today, that those who are chosen, it has absolutely nothing to do with who they are, where they've been, what they've done, what they haven't done, what they might do, what they might not do. Go out and just call anybody and everybody to come in. And those who are prepared came in and were able to stay. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 9, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. For the purpose that God's election might stand, irrespective of what these boys might do in the future or might not do in the future, God chose one over the other because he chose one over the other. It's an amazing blessing 
when asked, why did God choose me? Well, there's absolutely no earthly or human reason that I can possibly give why God would choose me. Everything about me is evidence that would that should cause God to not choose me. But he has not passed me by because he has not passed me by. And this in no way should promote pride in me, but it's crushing to me that God would choose me out of all of sinful humanity to inherit everlasting life. And for me, an uh, old hymn that one stanza that kind of gets at this, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And had God not chosen me, because God chose me, I would die. That's it. I don't know that I can answer the question why. Well, we actually will answer the question why in just a moment. But humanly, there really isn't an answer. But he chose me with all of my demerits in the first and only round. <laughs> I was always chosen last on team sports. And I know the reason why I was always chosen last on team sports, because I was terrible. I really don't know why Renee chose me uh, to marry me, to be quite honest with you. Uh, well, obviously she saw something in me. I'm sure it partly was my good looks um, and my, my, my potential for wealth building. I'm sure that was it. Uh, by the way, I've got some sermon tapes I'll sell you. Uh, they're cassettes. Um, I'm just glad they're not eight-track, but... Um, you know, obviously Renee did see something. I mean, I, I, I need to be honest with myself here. Renee did see something in me that caused her to say yes. But you know what? There was absolutely nothing in me that God saw that would, that would move him to say yes. You see, do you understand what I'm saying? Now let me just ask you this question. He chose us. Is that reason? He chose you is that reason to bless him, to eulogize God, to praise him. Well, that's the third thing, our position in Christ. Because he chose us in him, in him, that, that the same person that, that we see in verse 3, that in Christ in verse 3. And what's interesting about Ephesians, Paul uses some form of in Christ, in in him, some form of that, just in verses 3 through 14, 10 times. But if you were to count, and I did, and it was a trick, but I counted how many in Christ, in him, in Jesus Christ, in the Lord, in all those things that might be identified with Christ, that Paul uses that phrase or phrase like that all throughout the book of Ephesians. I counted at least 33 times in six chapters. And what that tells me is that this is a fundamental concept, not only of the book of Ephesians, but of our lives in Christ. What a blessing. And today, 
in Christ is really seen to be the marvel and wonder and blessed position that it is when we look at the fourth thing. In Christ and God's timetable, fourthly. By the way, all this is detailed on the sermon outline, so you don't really have to keep, I have to keep track of what, where I am, but you don't really. You just look at the sermon outline. So the fourth thing is the time. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And what in the world, what in the world does this mean? It means that in the council of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, before they did anything, before anything was, was created, they got together and they agreed on the covenant of redemption. And, and part of that agreement was the Father choosing a number and we call the elect or those, those predestined. And then they decided, and then the Son agreed to accomplish that work of redemption for the elect. The Holy Spirit agreed to apply that work of redemption uh, for the elect. And what's interesting is that as we even look at the, the grammar itself, because I believe that's what he chose us in him before the foundation world points to, the council of the Trinity, that, that, that agreement between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But even if we look at the text, even if we look at verse 4 and look at the word chose, it is in a particular uh, tense and mood, the aorist tense, the indicative mood, which denotes past time. This is something God has done. This is something God has settled in eternity past. You know, it's not going to be the case that God, you know, is kind of human history is tracking down the road and he goes, oh, God, I chose so-and-so, shouldn't have done that, off the list. <laughs> and it's not going to be the case that God, is, as history is, is progressing, he kind of goes, oh, man, that guy or that gal was so great, what did, I can't believe I didn't choose them. He kind of goes, okay, on the list. God's not going to do that. I know for some people the fact that God has got this settled in eternity past really upsets them, quite frankly. I don't know why. Because it's one of the precious doctrines. I know that my salvation is set and secure and nothing can shake me out of God's hands. Even as we look at the timetable, it is cause to praise. Paul said in Romans 9, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. You know, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, the golden chain of, of uh, salvation is given, you know, those who are predestined. And called or justified, those who are justified, or sanctified, those sanctified, glorified. And, and, and even as that's a summary of what I talked about earlier, the order of salvation and, you know, the beginning and the end, the means, and God's sovereign over all of that. And just as we're thinking about this, this chain of, let's just call it the golden chain of salvation, and you personalize that, that God shows us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, what that means is that not a single link in that chain is ever going to be broken. Think about that. Think about how many things are broken today. Relationships are broken. Commitments are broken. Bank books are broken. <laughs> Investments are broken. Houses are broken and broken into. 
which causes more brokenness. <laughs> but that chain, God's saving work, uh, God setting that plan and setting that number in heaven means it'll never be broken and we can rest and be secure in it. It's cause to praise God. And then I want to look at, fifthly, God's motivation. Verse 4, at the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, we, we read, in love. And I think this applies to both his choosing of us in love and also his God predestining us or decreeing that, that we would be the sons of God. In, in love, he has chosen us. In love, he has predestined us. Remember what Dan read in Deuteronomy 7, Jesus, uh, Jesus well, God said to, to Israel, uh, the reason I chose you was not because you were the greater of the nations or because you were spectacular as a people. God said the reason I chose you, Israel, is because of what? I love you. Ladies, don't you like to hear that, those words from your hubby? I love you. And we should really like and enjoy hearing those words from God, this blessed reality. So this really is why God chose me. I love you. And you know what? I think Renee's love for me, I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm picking on you, hon, but hey, this is sermon. Um, I really appreciate the fact that that Renee's love for me was a little blind and continues to be <laughs> a little blind because if those precious blinders ever came off, <laughs> I don't know, I'd be in a world of hurt because I'm really not that lovable, even from sweet Renee. But you know what? God's love is perfectly not blind. He sees us exactly as we are, every wart, every sin. And he loves us more than a spouse with blinders can ever love us. I chose you. I predestined you to be sons and daughters because I love you. Think about that. Is that not reason to break forth in eulogizing God, in blessing him? Bless the blesser which, that gives such a great blessing. And then the sixth is the goal. What is the goal of our salvation? What, it should be goals, plural, because I think there are three that we find in this text. The first one is to be, in verse 4, to be holy and blameless before him. And as we begin looking at Ephesians chapter 2, we see we're dead in our trespasses. We are we need radical transformation, and he does that. We're unholy, and we're enemies of God, and he makes us holy and blameless before him. And we enjoy that even today through being justified in Christ Jesus. And one day we'll be holy and blameless in full or in reality there in heaven I think it's also pointing to our, our destiny, glorification, be holy and blameless as we look to that, that ultimate end of our salvation. And there's another goal in verse 5. God predestines us or decrees that we would be 
his sons and daughters. So predestination is a bit more specific relating to our sonship than just simply choicing of those who would be predestined to be sons. In Galatians 4, 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul says, I have justified you that you will be adopted as, as my sons. And so think of our destiny. We, we, we sang about our destiny earlier being, being heaven. And our, and our destiny is to be holy and blameless, to be the sons and daughters of the living God. That's our destiny. That's reason to give praise. But there's one last goal that I want to address, and it's the chief goal. Look at verse 6. All this the Father does, choosing us to be holy and blameless, predestining us to be sons and daughters, is to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, my salvation is not primarily about me and my well-being and my well-being in eternity that is to come, my having heaven as my destiny is chief and foremost uh, not about me. It is about God and God's glory. Now, you may say, okay, well, why should I bless God over that? Because let me tell you something. God has put his name on the line. God has put his glory on the line with regards to our salvation. And he will be glorified, and what that means is that we will be saved. Think about it. God is not going to do anything that would taint and discredit his name. And he has committed to us on his name that we will be holy and blameless as his sons and daughters in heaven. That's reason to praise God. And the seventh and last reason to praise God, and I really appreciate your patience here, we finally made it to point seven, is the basis. On what basis has God chose us in Christ Jesus? Well, let's look at verses 9 and 11. I'm sorry, let's look at Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that they might be firstborn among many brothers. And so that passage looks like, on the surface, that God chose us. And then the next verse, by the way, is the golden chain of salvation. Sure looks like that God based his choice on simply foreknowing who would respond to him in repentance and faith. And then we look at verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 1, and it says that everything that we've talked about thus far, that the basis, according to verse 5, is this, according to the purpose of his will, he has chosen us in Christ, he has predestined us to be his son. So is there a discrepancy in Scripture? Verse 5, chapter 1, Ephesians, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 29, chapter 8, Romans, for those whom he foreknew... And there's absolutely no discrepancy, no contradiction in God's Word. Because the word that is translated for new in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is rooted in the Old Testament understanding of knowledge and election. And it is rightly understood as God determining to know intimately beforehand someone. So in reality, Paul is saying the exact same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, as he's saying in, Romans, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. 
that God willed to choose us according to the counsel of his own counsel, he determined beforehand. And that word for know in Romans chapter 8 should really be for choose. And the point is this. God bases his sovereign choice of election on the counsel of his own will and not in what man may or may not do in the future. And you'll see this is what our confession treats as the, the doctrine of unconditional election, that God doesn't base his choice on simply knowing someone will choose him in the future. He bases his choice on his will and who he is. And that is reason, really, to give praise that, that God in eternity past chose me because he willed to choose me. You know, in a few moments, we'll, we'll be singing a hymn, and, and, and the hymn really gets at, at the heart of, of this. One, one stanza, the second stanza says, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? What should be our response to these spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus? God choosing us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless and his adopted children all in Christ Jesus. And there are really two responses, humility and praise, eulogy, blessing God. And I want to encourage you, I want to encourage myself to fill the momentum of this passage. When I was in undergraduate school in the mountains of North Carolina, my school, Appalachian State, was near North Carolina ski country. I do not advise going to North Carolina to ski. But um, in the winter, we'd have a number of skiers come up. And I worked at a, I only skied one time. And part of the reason is I was busy studying and also working at the local hospital where I assisted doctors and nurses in the ER taking care of those who did go skiing and skied poorly. And so I learned, at the same time I was taking physics, and I learned a little bit about uh, momentum and that when we talk about momentum, you know, mass times velocity, mass in motion, that, that really momentum is understood as the force it would take to stop a moving object. And as I worked there in the ER, I, I, I learned about the force that it would take to stop a skier out of control who skied straight down the mountain without making any cutbacks uh, to slow himself down. And do you know that a ski lodge is able to stop a skier? Mass in motion, the force that's needed to stop mass in motion. Yes, we took care of people who actually did that. And the reason I tell that story is that there's so many things that pick up momentum but come to an abrupt stop today because there's a force that is greater that stops it. But let me tell you something. The momentum of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ Jesus 
When they get rolling and they are rolling, they pick up such momentum that nothing can stop it. Let us be so engaged with the blessings we have that nothing can stop the momentum of the spiritual blessings welling up in our heart. Nothing can stop us from singing about it. Nothing can stop us from speaking about it. Nothing can stop us from worshiping in light of it. Nothing can stop us from blessing God for it. Father, cause us to bless you and to bless you more and more for Jesus' sake and for our good. Amen.